Welcome to Current Radio's Politics Station. Please enjoy today's selection of political news. Abby, let's shift gears and discuss the political turmoil in Japan. Prime Minister Fumio Kishida is grappling with a fundraising scandal that has led to the resignation of four of his ministers. What are your thoughts on this? Well, Michael, it's a huge blow to Kishida's government. The ministers who resigned are from the Abe faction, the largest group in Kishida's ruling Liberal Democratic Party. And it's not just the ministers. Even the chief cabinet secretary, Hirokazu Matsuno, has stepped down. Right. And it's worth noting that prosecutors are investigating allegations of unreported funds raised via fundraising parties. We're talking about a whopping 500 meters over the past five years. And there are whispers that Kishida's faction might also be involved. Yes, indeed. And it's important to clarify here that holding fundraising events is not illegal. But the issue here is the alleged failure to record the sums in official statements, which would be a violation of political funding laws. It's a complex situation and... It's tarnishing public trust in the government, isn't it? Yasutoshi Nishimura, the former economy and industry minister, even acknowledged that public anger over his alleged involvement was damaging that trust. Absolutely, Michael. And it's not just the government's reputation that's taking a hit. Kishida's approval ratings are at their lowest since he took office, and support for the LDP, which has governed almost uninterrupted for decades, has also fallen below 30% for the first time since 2012. It's a tough situation for Kishida. He says he plans to deal with the allegations head-on and restore public trust. But some analysts are skeptical that a cabinet clear-out will put an end to the scandal. Abby, do you think this could affect his leadership? It's hard to say, Michael. The next lower house election isn't due until October 2025, but this scandal has sparked speculation that Kishida could face a challenge for the party's leadership when it elects a new president next September. But the bigger question is, will he survive until then? It's a question that's on everyone's mind. And in the midst of all this, Japan is grappling with a deepening cost of living crisis and plans to raise taxes to fund record defense spending. Yes, the timing couldn't be worse for Kishida. It's going to be interesting to see how he navigates these challenges in the coming months. While the political landscape in Japan remains tense, let's turn our attention to another significant global event. In a bid to address ongoing tensions, a key figure from the White House is making crucial diplomatic visits in the Middle East. Let's delve into this development. This just in, President Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, is set to meet top Israeli officials over the next two days. The White House is keen on urging the, the Israelis to be more precise in their operations against Hamas in Gaza. Abby, what's your take on this? This is a crucial development, Michael. It's no secret that there's been a public rift between Biden and Prime Minister Netanyahu over the mounting civilian casualties in Gaza. The differences in opinion about the future for Palestinians after combat operations end are also significant. Sullivan's visit seems to be a clear move to address these issues. He's meeting not just Netanyahu, but also Israeli President Isaac Herzog and top military leaders. The conversations are expected to be, and I quote, extremely serious. The aim is to discuss efforts to reduce harm to civilians. And let's not forget the American hostages. 
Eight Americans are among the more than 100 hostages held by Hamas since their October 7th attack on Israel. Sullivan's visit will also include discussions about their return. That's right. It's a dire situation, with more than 1,200 Israelis and foreign nationals killed in the attack, and the subsequent Israeli response has led to over 18,000 Palestinian casualties. The stakes are incredibly high. They certainly are. And it's not just Israel. Before arriving there, Sullivan was in Saudi Arabia meeting with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. The broader diplomatic efforts of the Biden administration to maintain stability in the region are also on the table. Indeed, and that includes efforts to deter Houthi attacks in the Red Sea and to build on work to normalize relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel. There's a lot to unpack, and it's a delicate situation. True, Michael. The Middle East has always been a complex puzzle, and the current situation is no different. It will be interesting to see how these talks develop and what implications they'll have for the region and beyond. From one global hotspot to another, let's pivot our attention from the Middle East to the Far East. In South Korea, a surprising shift in immigration policy is raising eyebrows and sparking conversations about national security and humanitarian considerations. Let's delve into this. In a surprising shift, South Korea's top immigration official, Justice Minister Han Dong-hoon, is pushing for a legal amendment to screen asylum seekers for any history of terrorist acts or associations. Abby, this seems like quite a departure from his previous stance, doesn't it? It certainly does, Michael. This is a man who has previously advocated for more integration of outsiders. This change in tone is quite stark, and it's all about national security, it seems. Yes. He's quoted as saying there is a lack of legal grounds for denying refugee status to terrorists under the current law. This raises a lot of questions about the balance between national security and humanitarian considerations. How do we strike the right balance? It's a difficult question, Michael. On one hand, a nation has the responsibility to protect its citizens. But on the other, there's a moral obligation to offer refuge to those fleeing hardship. And those two things aren't mutually exclusive. It's possible to have a robust screening process and still offer asylum to those in need. But it's a fine line to walk, isn't it? It definitely is, Michael. And it's a line that's being debated around the world, not just in South Korea. As the global refugee crisis continues, countries are grappling with how to handle asylum seekers while still maintaining national security. Absolutely. It's a global issue that requires a nuanced approach. And it's interesting to see how different countries like South Korea are addressing it. But let's not forget the human element here. These are people who are desperate for a safer life, right? It's a complex issue and one that we'll be watching closely as it unfolds. But it's clear that this is a conversation we need to be having and not just in South Korea. Indeed, Abby, it's a conversation that affects us all no matter where we live. And it's one that we'll continue to have here on Current Radio. From the intricacies of immigration and asylum policies, we now move over to the realm of defense policy. As we continue to explore the intersection of national security and policymaking, let's delve into a recent development that has sparked quite a bit of controversy. The Senate has just passed a defense policy bill, traditionally a bipartisan affair, but this time around, the debate has been far from usual. Abby, let's dive into the defense policy bill that just passed the Senate, a bill that's traditionally bipartisan, 
but has seen an unusually divisive debate this time around. What are your thoughts? Well, Michael, it's certainly noteworthy for a couple of reasons. Firstly, it authorizes the largest pay raise for troops in over two decades. But it's also leaving behind some policy priorities that social conservatives were pushing for, which is causing some friction. It's interesting how the negotiators had to drop some priorities to get the bill over the finish line. And now it's heading to the House, where opponents have been more vocal about their concerns. Yes, for instance, the bill doesn't include language blocking the Pentagon's abortion travel policy or restricting gender-affirming health care for transgender service members. However, Republicans did win some concessions on diversity and inclusion training in the military. For example, the bill freezes hiring for such training until a full accounting of the programming and costs is completed and reported to Congress. It's a mixed bag, really. The bill also sets key Pentagon policy that lawmakers will attempt to fund through a follow-up appropriations bill. It calls for a 5.2% boost in service member pay, the biggest increase in more than 20 years. The bill authorizes $886 billion for national defense programs for the current fiscal year, about 3% more than the prior year. But there's more to it, isn't there? Indeed, Michael. The bill also includes a short-term extension of a surveillance program aimed at preventing terrorism and catching spies. This program, however, has detractors on both sides of the aisle who view it as a threat to the privacy of ordinary Americans. Some House Republicans were incensed at the extension, which is designed to buy more time to reach a compromise. This surveillance program allows the U.S. government to collect without a warrant the communications of non-Americans located outside the country to gather foreign intelligence. Now this tool has been crucial in disrupting terror attacks, cyber intrusions, and other national security threats. But it has also encountered strong bipartisan pushback. Democrats like Senator Ron Wyden and Republican supporters of former President Donald Trump are demanding better privacy protections for Americans and have proposed a slew of competing bills. And then there's the issue of the bill's passage in the House. House Speaker Mike Johnson has teed up the defense policy bill for a vote through a process generally reserved for non-controversial legislation. This means at least two-thirds of the House will have to vote in favor of the legislation for it to pass, but it avoids the prospect of a small number of Republicans blocking it through a procedural vote. However, this could hurt Johnson's standing with some, some of the most conservative members in the House. Certainly, the bill's consideration comes at a dangerous time for the world, with wars in Ukraine and the Middle East, and China increasingly flexing its military might in the South China Sea. It's clear that... And let's not forget the domestic implications. The bill includes the creation of a special inspector general for Ukraine to address concerns about whether taxpayer dollars are being spent in Ukraine as intended. On China, the bill establishes a new training program with Taiwan, requires a plan to accelerate deliveries of Harpoon anti-ship missiles to Taiwan, and approves an agreement that enables Australia to access nuclear-powered submarines. It's a complex situation with many moving parts. The bill certainly has its detractors, but it's also seen as vital for maintaining America's military readiness. It'll be interesting to see how the debate unfolds in the House. Absolutely, Michael. It's a critical piece of legislation with far-reaching implications 
both domestically and internationally. We'll be keeping a close eye on the developments.